This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views in New York. My colleague Kate Duguid recently sat down with Bill Emmett, the former editor of The Economist, who's got a new book out. It's called The Fate of the West. The book argues that the West, the system of political and economic openness, as it were, built after the Second World War, is under threat. Rising income inequality and the economic instability that followed the 2008 financial crisis has given rise to political forces seeking to clamp down on this openness. Bill and Kate discuss immigration, globalization, populism, and the future of the European Union, and why we should all strive to be a bit more like, well, Sweden. Bill also gives us some insight into why the threat to the West remains real, despite the electoral victories we've seen of centrists like Mark Rutte in the Netherlands and Emmanuel Macron in France. So give a listen to Kate and Bill Emmett. The fate of the West argues that after decades of political instability since the 9-11 attacks and the uh, economic instability that has followed the Great Recession, the West may be in decline. Could you define for us first the West and what's implied by that term? What I think of as the West is any country in the world, anywhere geographically, that has adopted uh, what I think of as Western ideas of openness, where it's open to trade, open to people, open to ideas, open to new elites coming through in a society, the open society, and equality in the sense of full political participation with an, uh, an aspiration to an equality of civil rights and political rights and social mobility within the society. We often uh, paraphrase that as being liberal democracy, sure. uh, but it takes many forms, and I think that the essence of it is that balance between openness, which after all brings change, is disruptive, is often disturbing for societies, and an equality which helps the societies bond together, absorb the shocks, find ways to uh, adapt to uh, all sorts of new things that come along, whether it's Uber today or uh, the railway in the past, uh, we need that sense of equality to be able to absorb change, the change that the openness itself stimulates and produces progress. So any country, be it the United States, Britain, South Korea, Japan, Sweden, that has adopted this, I call the West. So you argue that anti-openness, anti-globalization is the thing that's, uh, that's threatening the West? I believe that the West, these liberal societies, open societies, have made some crucial mistakes okay. that most spectacularly were symbolized by the 2008 financial crisis, mistakes that we are still trying to recover from. And it is the legacy of those mistakes, of 10 years of stagnant growth, of uh, declining real incomes, of a sense of injustice that many people feel, that has put the West in jeopardy because 
populations have become angry, uh, disillusioned, impatient, We're told that they just need to wait for recovery. We're doing our best to sort things out. The central banks are printing money. We're trying to rescue things. But meanwhile, people feel, as was evidenced by the election of Donald Trump, that uh, you may be doing something, but it's for the bankers or it's for the 1% or it's for the already globalized people and not for a, an equal sense of citizenship and equal sense of participation. And that reaction is producing the danger that I'm describing. So our weakness is the, the fact that we let this happen, the failures that led to the crisis and the, the worst financial crisis for 80 years. But then the danger is the reaction to that, just as during the 1920s and 1930s, we had economic crisis, and then it was the response that led to nationalism and the Second World War. So would you say that these uh, populist movements are incorrectly targeting globalization or maybe openness, as you put it, um, as the source of these issues? I think that the populist movements are, are correctly identifying the problems. In other words, they're, in each of their different ways, they're riding a wave of anger about whatever is people are angry about in their individual country and whatever it's possible to point a finger at as the potential cause. Always in economic and social crises, foreigners are particularly good people to blame because they're not one of us, they don't vote, um, they are like they can't talk back. So that, that I think, explains some of the production of, uh, of uh, alternative uh, methods uh, that are being sold to people by populist parties, such as closing borders, such as blocking immigration, uh, such as um, limiting free, free, free speech and free movement of people in various ways, uh, that, uh, that is it, like the alternative to the system that is seen to have failed. I think globalization is the wrong word for it. It is openness. Sure. Globalization is a mm -hmm. consequence of openness, okay. of if you've got the more and more countries that are open, the more it becomes a global system. Right. That's really what is what we think of as globalization, but it's the openness that has produced the problem. And I believe that openness is correct, but we went too far in capital movements and financial markets. But as we did that, we lost equality in the sense that the financial sector in particular, but also various what Teddy Roosevelt called malefactors of great wealth, <laughs> um, got an excessive grip over the political process and the public policy process that led to uh, the neglect of regulation of banking and financial sector regulation that led to the crisis being as huge and devastating as it, as it turned out to be. So we had as it were, a, a loss of equality that then made the openness of capital flows devastating. So you're saying that this concentration of power among the financial elite is driving this inequality, but does global capitalism or, or openness not drive that in income inequality as well? In my belief, the fundamental problem is a concentration of power that has arisen within democracy that uh, is a natural process of democracy because after all, every election, every democratic process is a contest and mankind wants to win contests and is always trying to race to seize power and to indeed accumulate power in order to then get the best out of the democratic process. I think that what has happened, not only in the financial sector, but within our many democracies over the decades, is that interest groups get powerful. 
Sometimes it's groups of lawyers. Sometimes it's trade unions. Sometimes it's doctors. Uh, most spectacularly, over the last 20 years, it's been the financial sector. And they get a disproportionate power over public policy that then distorts policy in their favor. That, in turn, has led to this absence of regulation that meant that what could have been simply a financial drama turned into a financial right. catastrophe. Right. So that's my basic thesis. It's uh, actually a thesis of a, um, a thinker who was at the University of Maryland called Mansur Olson, uh, who wrote a book mm -hmm. called The Rise and Decline of Nations in the early 1980s. Uh, one of his first case studies was Britain, was, uh, was the Britain that was in deep trouble at the end of the 1970s, thanks to, in that case, the concentration of power in trade unions, uh, but yeah. also some other groups. And Margaret Thatcher's reforms of the 1980s were really a way to clear away those obstacles and although it's ironical to think of it this way <laughs> now to actually recreate political equality now the question then is does it then inevitably produce economic inequality income inequality and yeah. I think the truth is that sometimes it does mm -hmm. and that the democratic system needs to lean against that process uh, because uh, both there is a concentration, natural concentration in capitalism where people dominate markets and create monopolies, but also we're a winner-takes-all society in income terms. And I think throughout our history, governments have lent against that by investing in public education, for example, in uh, creating welfare systems that provide safety nets, in helping retraining workers who are displaced uh, in their jobs, in making tax systems broadly progressive without making them penal. Uh, hopefully. Uh, and I think that governments need to do that to prevent power, concentration of power, becoming entrenched generation after generation and taking away the ladder of social mobility. You talk especially about Switzerland and Sweden as countries that are doing well and have recovered um, quite effectively from the financial crisis, Sweden in part because of their robust welfare state. Is that also, though, because these are small countries with homogenous economies? I think that being a small country probably does help you uh, in that you can achieve consensus for reforms that inevitably, when you're making reforms, liberalizing reforms to make the economy work better, you're going to have losers and winners. Mm -hmm. And to make the losers feel a trust in the system, it's easier if you have some form of a consensus. But I would point out that there are plenty of small countries that have not solved their problems, Fair <laughs> <laughs> such as Greece, for example, an even smaller country, which is in recurrent uh, economic crisis. So small may be helpful, but it isn't eternally beautiful uh, in this sense. And I think that uh, in the United States, for example, one does see that process of reform taking place. I write a lot in the book about California right. um, and how through the development of consensus within the political system, thanks to a public finance crisis and the arrival back in power of uh, Jerry Brown, mm -hmm. like a, an experienced governor who really had no upward political ambitions after being governor has, met, has enabled California to produce reforms that are more consensual, that have stopped the referendum system, the ballot initiative system being so damaging, that are moving towards evening out the tax system to make it less uh, grossly dependent on Silicon Valley and capital gains and you know, spreading out the system and uh, reforms like that. So I think it's possible within big countries as well. Ah, okay. So while these events have happened, I believe, since writing your book, I wanted to ask you about uh, the elections in first the Netherlands and then France. 
the center really did hold against far-right forces. We had the VVD retain its position as the largest party in the Netherlands, and Emmanuel Macron was elected. Will these elections stop this wave of populism? I think the wave of populism will be stopped by systems, countries delivering better hope and opportunities for people, particularly young people. Uh, the populism is a response to failure. And so the question is whether a President Macron, who mm -hmm. is a spectacular example of the rejuvenative, uh, re you know, regenerative ability of democracy, um, he has to now deliver over the next five years. But he is a, a, a wonderful uh, case because he is 39 years old, the youngest French leader since Napoleon. He, he formed his political party barely a year ago, mm -hmm. and he's first of all won the presidency by a landslide and now looks set to win the parliamentary elections also by a landslide. So there is clearly a, a, a capability of re renewal and public support for some form of renewal in France. Uh, so I think this gives me hope. We have the methods within our societies to produce that renewal, but now he has to deliver and, uh, and um, you know, show that, um, that Marine Le Pen was wrong and that the Front National can be ignored in future. Otherwise, they'll come back. Sure. So while we're on the topic of the EU, um, let's talk about that for a moment, which I think by your definition has not been um, a paragon of openness in recent years especially. Where do you think the EU is headed? Well, I think that the uh, European Union has had a series of economic crises made worse by political crises surrounding Europe. Economic crisis has been a consequence of the 2008 financial crash, which then produced a crisis in the euro area of sovereign debt mm -hmm. uh, that showed that the euro um, was only half-built, mm -hmm. not properly thought through. The political will to keep it was there, but not to really develop it in a way that could work very well. And because there was also the migrant crisis, the refugee crisis coming from Middle East and North Africa, right. and you had Russia and its uh, intervention in Ukraine and seizure of Crimea going on at the same time, this produced divisions within the societies of Europe. So Europe in the last 10 years has become dysfunctional in mm -hmm. that it's been unable to reach agreement on ways to go forward. It's tended to just simply try to preserve the status quo. So what needs to happen now is that a new forward momentum needs to be created in Europe that turns from a populist point of view or a popular point of view, mm -hmm. uh, the European Union into being a solution to people's problems rather than a problem in itself. Uh, I think that Macron in France offers some hope of that. European Union has always been driven by a close relationship between France and Germany mm -hmm. and a desire to agree on progress between them and then achieve consensus among the many smaller countries. That has broken down in the last 10 years, that relationship. I think with Macron, powerful, positive, constructive in France. In September, Germany has its elections, and uh, Chancellor Merkel looks very likely to be re-elected re with a new coalition. Mm -hmm. It'll be her final term in office, presumably. She's been in power for 12 years. So I think there's a possibility, at least, but I think a good possibility, that these two will be able to offer some leadership to create a more positive outlook for the European Union. It's good, lucky perhaps, that the Eurozone economy is currently recovering right. reasonably strongly, 
it's always easier to make reforms when you've got <laughs> a positive tide of economic Certainly. growth to uh, ease some of the, uh, the controversies that surround them. Certainly. So this gets to another question, which is uh, why, why do you think populism has taken hold in certain countries um, and not others since the crisis? Ireland certainly saw a massive crash. Uh, why, why don't you think there has necessarily been a surge in populism there? Or why hasn't it taken hold, maybe? I think it's hard to diagnose the exact differences between what, what, makes the di what, what makes you France and have Marine Le Pen getting a third of the vote and leaves you as Ireland with, as you say, no big populist uh, party, or Spain where populist parties have developed that have never actually yet got close to power. Um, I think it depends on the reaction of the mainstream parties, that's number one, uh, and their uh, responsiveness to the problems and, to the, uh, and therefore their ability to create a sense that um, it's worth sticking with them, that, uh, that uh, there is a way out and I think that was particularly strongly and, and effectively done in Ireland. Spain has been more Certainly. of a bumpy ride, but nevertheless also um, is showing a strong sign of turnaround. So I, I think it's mainly that. There's probably also historical issues and issues of what's the political system. Um, in proportional political system, the representation systems, the pop populist parties have the chance to at least grow to a, to a, to a significant presence Right. Um, in the system to make a good noise and to, to get publicity, as in the Netherlands, for example, mm -hmm. whereas in Ireland, which has a less proportional system, it's probably harder to do that. And Britain, well, we had a populist party, the UK Independence Party, but it never got any presence in Parliament. Right. It did, right. though, have some impact. Certainly. <laughs> so turning sort of to the, to the United States now, why... Why do you think the West is in crisis now? Um, the United States reelected a, a centrist president in Barack Obama a second time after the financial crisis um, in 2012. The shocks were perhaps being felt more deeply at that point in time. Europe has been an issue in Britain for a decade at least. Why is this coming to a head now? I think that it's, the issues are coming to a head now because of a loss of patience by populations. Okay. Um, no, financial crisis 2008, people actually have a lot of trust in their democratic systems, but the trust isn't infinite. Uh, and so I think if you look particularly at the United States, from a European point of view, it seemed that the United States had recovered faster from the, the economic collapse than we did in Europe. Um, and perhaps sympathy in Europe with Barack Obama made covered up the fact uh, that actually so many Americans were still angry and that their incomes had been stagnant, that nearly between 7 and 10 million people had left the labor force, that the labor participation rate was at uh, remarkable lows, uh, that uh, you had uh, an alienation that was potentially powerful enough to produce the result that happened in November of the last year. Now, the U.S. political system is it has its particular characteristics, and of course you can explain that, uh, that election in many ways, including a hostility to Hillary mm -hmm. Clinton as much as a a pro-President Trump argument, but uh, nevertheless, I think that that uh, sense that patience had run out and that uh, maybe it was time for, a, for an alternative was important. Barack Obama, after all, was, in a way, the first populist success in the United States since uh, he came from almost nowhere in politics. 
In that he was a change candidate? He was a change candidate. He was uh, almost no political experience. Um, and it was a mass um, popular support that financed him through, through um, small donations. He was a kind of Bernie Sanders of his time, just in a different form. Uh, so eight years later, you could say, well, actually, there was disappointment. So right. there was some part of his electorate that then switched sides. Uh, that that uh, helps to explain Donald Trump, but now why do I think that that means the West is in in um, trouble? It is because the Trump philosophy, the America First philosophy, is a direct attack on many of the virtues of the West, both the openness, but and in particular the way in which Western countries have made alliances with one another and agreed collectively on a system of international law and uh, structure of security and rules of the game in trade that have enabled their open systems to flourish in uh, the post-war world, uh, and he seems to be some, taking something of a confrontational attitude to that. <laughs> uh, it remains to be seen how far he'll get, but that's why I feel the, the West is at a tipping point. It's either saved or it could start to spiral in a, in a very negative direction. But you seem, the book is nevertheless optimistic, it seems. Are you optimistic about the fate of the West? I'm optimistic about the fate of the West because I think that once we understand the problems, we can find the solutions. I think we have a very adaptive system that uh, the openness of democracy means that we are able to evolve um, in a way that a dictatorship and authoritarian system finds it much harder to do so that I think that we can bounce back from our mistakes. We just have to get keep the basics of our system robust, defend the institutions, defend the fundamentals of the rule of law, but also re-energize our populations to uh, defend some of the, the values that have made us prosperous in the past and that can do so again. Uh, so I'm optimistic that we can do that, but I'm not, I'm not rosy-eyed in my optimism. I don't, I, don't, I don't just think that we do it inevitably. We do it because people stand up and fight for it. Sure. And, and, and what do you think that regeneration uh, looks like? I think that the regeneration looks, well, in, a, in, a, in a, an immediate new sense, it looks like Emmanuel Macron. It looks like right. Right. the ability of, a, of a, a troubled, stagnant system to suddenly produce um, a new movement, a new party, a new consensus for change. The case of Sweden that we discussed earlier was a case of 25 years of stagnation and decline right. followed by then a sort of breakout mm -hmm. period. And I think that that is the way in which Western countries often happen. We kind of decline gradually. We get stuck. That's certainly what happened in Britain. Right. Uh, bit by bit, we don't think it's a disaster. And then suddenly we wake up and think, my good Lord, we're in real trouble. <laughs> uh, and then fortunately... Uh, we elect somebody, we come together to, to support a, a force to, um, to uh, deal with some of our problems. And I think that that's what we've got to uh, fight to create while making sure that some of the kind of fundamental underpinnings of our success are not uh, destroyed on the way. After all, in the 20th century, we, uh, we started the century as a strong West um, with emerging democracies, at least, and then we had two world wars that, shall we say, delayed progress. And um, so although we ended up the century more prosperous than ever before, we went through some devastating periods, and it's important to avoid those devastating periods. Certainly.
Now, at the end of the book, you finish with a series of policy proposals from openness is all, but not everything has to be open all the time, the last of which is fostering the international rule of law and international collaboration is essential. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about the solutions, uh, particularly that, that last one, and what can be done to save openness? I think that on openness, first of all, to me, the biggest question is about capital flows and about, uh, if you like, speculative finance capital and okay. how open we should be, really, okay. to massive forces of shadow banking and, uh, and um, massive uh, trading of, of, uh, of uh, derivative securities and so forth. And I think that there's a case for being a bit more closed on capital flows, frankly. Okay. But that has to be achieved by international agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is where international collaboration and international law comes in, that I think that uh, we, we maintain the regulation of openness and, uh, and so on by countries getting together and agreeing rules of the game and agreeing that climate change, for example, needs a certain type, right. type of set of solutions, that the development of world trade needs another type of Set of set of rules, or that uh, international maritime law needs to be of of, of, of a particular nature, uh, and I think what we've seen in the last few years has been some disillusionment with those systems and some undermining of them, particularly in trade, um, but also uh, uh, some areas of uh, of uh, security cooperation. And what I'm wanting to say in that is that actually we can only really make progress as open societies if we do find um, consensus between us on international rules of the game. And the rise of countries like China that in many ways want to challenge some of these rules of right. the game mean that the rules themselves are, are ever more important. We're not going to be able to stop China from expanding its, its influence in, in Asia militarily at least I hope we're not going to try right. that. Mm. We can only do so really by um, strengthening adherence to laws and rules and getting more mm. and more countries to support that, um, to challenge any Chinese challenge, to any Chinese rejection of those uh, or attempts to change those rules of the game. So that's what so I mean. In our new, more diverse era, particularly with the rising China, uh, accepted rules are more important than ever. And that's where Donald Trump is something of a threat because he mm. has uh, at least campaigned in rejection of many of these rules of the right. game. And now he's withdrawn America from the Paris Climate Change Accord, uh, an accord signed by an American government less than two years ago. Yeah, yeah. And has threatened NATO and, and, and the like. And has threatened NATO, has made uh, noises even about the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty during the campaign. So. I don't know what he'll carry through on, but uh, I do think that he risks unraveling some of the very things that have helped us prosper. I'm not sure if any of us know, know what exactly is to come, but thank you very much, Bill, for your insight. We were talking about the fate of the West, the battle to save the world's most successful political idea. Thank you. Thank you. That was Bill Emmett, author of the new book, The Fate of the West, talking to Breaking Views' Kate Duguid. Though Bill does have concerns about the decline of liberal democracies, he's optimistic they can recover, as you heard. California under Jerry Brown is one example. Sweden in the 1990s and even Margaret Thatcher's Britain all offer examples of how breaking up powerful interest groups can help societies move from stagnation without threatening openness.
It's time for President Donald Trump and Prime Minister Theresa May to crack their history books open, too. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hapton, to Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob One Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.